Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. So um, let me start. We'll just start in verse 21, that lead up to where we're going to be today. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That was the end of last week. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town. They went out of the town and were coming to him. All right, let's break this down. So the disciples come back. They didn't interrupt. Did you notice? Now this could be taken so many different ways and we're going to kind of explore it all. But basically, they didn't interrupt. They, they didn't come in and then look at the woman and ask her, what do you seek? Nor did they look at Jesus and say, why are you talking to her? And I could make all different um, words emphatic, meaning I could stress them like, why are you talking to her? Why are you talking to her? That, that's very different. So it's, it's hard to understand like, what context they would have asked, but the bottom line is we know they would. They didn't. They didn't ask anything. And I just wonder when they came back, could they feel the moment? Do you ever wonder that? I mean, something spectacular, deeply spiritual, life-transforming happened in that moment. I just want, have you ever walked in on a conversation and you knew it was deep and personal and you weren't in it? Right? Sometimes people, don't, sometimes people don't feel it and you wish they would. Do you get my drift? Like you are having a deep conversation with some, someone and someone walks up in it and they have no awareness whatsoever that something is happening here and they're not in it, okay? So you wonder what they would have felt. And, but one thing I will tell you this is one thing they've learned already is that everything Jesus does is intentional. And we know that this was intentional. We talked about the fact that he was on a divine calendar. Do you remember that? When we looked at the word and he had to go through Samaria. We talked about that last week. So he's on a divine calendar. This was a divine appointment. So everything about this has been intentional. Going through Samaria, sending the disciples to get food in town, why? So he, he could have a personal, private conversation with this woman. Let me ask you, would this have been a great conversation for this woman, or could he have gotten to the depths of this woman 
if honestly all those dingbats were around. That many men around, and remember these are young men, okay? I'm gonna laugh about that some in this lesson today. And so all of it was intentional. A woman that society didn't value. A woman that was vulnerable, broken, unprotected, we talked about. We actually have no idea about her brokenness. We don't know all of her regrets. We don't know all of her sinful choices. But Jesus did. He knew it all. How do we know that? Because in chapter two, we heard these words. He knew what was in man. He knew. And that was the point. It says that she left her bowl. Would you have even stopped there to think about that detail? She left her bowl. Well, there are so many commentaries that speak about the fact that she left her bowl. I'm going to give you different thoughts as to why that is even mentioned. Maybe she was in a hurry. Her life had just been changed. She couldn't wait to testify, and she leaves the bowl. Maybe it was symbolism. What would the symbolism be? Do you remember we were talking about how earthly water she would always have to come back and draw, that it never satisfied, and Jesus has changed her life talking about living water, so maybe it's symbolic that she leaves it behind because she has received this living water, and now she moves out to testify. Maybe she was leaving it for who? He had nothing to draw with. They just showed up with lunch. Hopefully they showed up with water, but I can't. Maybe she was leaving it for Jesus and his disciples. Maybe she thought, I'm going to leave it here because I'm coming right back. Could be. Either way, it definitely gives credentials to John's firsthand testimony of being there, his, his firsthand account, because he's giving us the tiniest of details that she leaves her bowl of water, and she rushes out to go testify. She immediately raced out into town to testify. And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Do those words, come see, mean something to you? They should. Do you remember me talking about those when he was calling the disciples? What words did Jesus always say? Come. See, right? Come, experience. It was, come on, come with me. And so she basically goes and, and testifies and then says what? Come on, come see. Don't just trust me. What? Come see, come experience. And that's what she did. She says, listen, this guy knew everything I ever did. Listen, that is one line to tell you that she told her whole testimony. Do you honestly think no more talking was done? That's all she had to say to them? No. Well, it represents her whole story. She's saying to them, come and see. You're never going to know what I just experienced. A rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, a male sat down and talked with me. He talked with me about living water. My soul was burning within me. I can't even begin to tell you, but more marvelous, marvelous than that, he knew everything about me. He could tell you my whole story. And the fact is, he sat down with me anyway, and, and he proclaimed that he was the Christ. Could it be? 
Could it be? Come, come with me and see. Listen, for a woman who was honestly kicked in the teeth by life, who pretty much walked around very vulnerable, unprotected, really not wanting to cause a ruckus or be seen, she sure went out into that crowd, but she still showed respect because for a woman to be proclaiming was one thing. What did she say? Could it be? Come and see. Come and see. And she brings them. One thing I thought about is she couldn't have shared the greatness of Jesus without sharing her brokenness. This was a hard woman, and now she's been changed. Think about, when we testify, when that woman went out and testified, she was willing to be vulnerable with her brokenness. Why? So that she could proclaim his greatness. This was a hard woman. She had protected herself along the years, I'm going to tell you. Um, I, I got the opportunity the other day to see the movie Redeeming Love, before it's released in September. And when you watch that, I think this scenario is gonna come alive because do you honestly think this Samaritan woman, this was her dream to get to this place? You honestly think that these were all her choices? Even the most broken, hard, phallus individuals have stories. How did they get there? One of the things we have to do to have empathy is to get into somebody else's story and see what all took place. Was she a hard woman? Yeah, she's a hard woman. Life kicked her in the teeth. Has she made bad choices? Yes, she's made bad choices. What were her motives? I don't know. But the fact is, for her to go out in the open and to be able to share the greatness of God, she had to be willing no longer to be hard, but to be vulnerable and to take a risk with people she actually didn't trust and be able to share her brokenness so that they would recognize this change. I can't imagine what the change was like. Was there change in her face? Was there change in her body language? Did she have a joy in her that they had never seen? Was she soft all of a sudden now? Was she confident? She had been changed. Her testimony revealed her brokenness, proclaimed his greatness. She let him in. And she says, come, come, come and see. In verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Now, in the Bible, I would put scene break, okay? We have two scenes happening simultaneously. We have this scene of her going out into town, but you're like, break, break scene. Now we're back over here at the well. She's left, and she's left her water uh, bowl there, and now it proceeds, and the disciples return and see Jesus with this woman. They don't really ask. They don't get involved, and she leaves. The disciples don't ask, maybe don't care, um, almost as if she doesn't exist. They just go right back to preparing lunch. Why? Because they are young Jewish men, and they're starving to death. Right? Zachary used to say all the time, Mom, I am hungry to death. 
right? And so they have been in town. They come back. They see her. Maybe they feel something happened. I don't know. They don't interrupt, but they also don't ask. They don't really seem to care. He's not offering information, I guess, and they're not asking for information. And so they go about doing what they do. Um, they're hungry, and they start to prepare lunch. I can't imagine this scene, can you? First off, let me ask you, have you ever had a deep spiritual moment? All right, you're either um, talking to someone, and it's, it's so awesome, and you're seeing life change, or you're studying the word, and you're having a moment, or you're in the middle of worship, and your full kids walk in the door, and they're not in the same place you're at. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And they walk in, and you're having this moment with Jesus, and they open the door, and they're like, shut up, Zachary, you don't know. You weren't there. And it's this talk and everything and this vibe coming in the door, and you almost want to go, no, stop, turn around. It's not their fault. They're just living life. They're not where you are at that moment. But this is how I picture this scene. I mean, he has just proclaimed, to be quite honest, for the first time to an individual, I am the Messiah. Her life has been changed. And here they come with their PB&Js, and they're talking and carrying on. And can you imagine? They're young men. They're in Samaria. They don't hang out in Samaria. They're talking about town. They're talking about where they went. They're talking about what they saw. Who knows? Maybe they're um, even judging some of what they saw. Did you see that chick over at the, that stand? Wow, can you imagine? Can you imagine if we were in our area and she was dressed like that in our area? Whoa, that would not be good. Yeah, why don't you bring her home, Peter, and see? I mean, who knows? I'm making stuff up on the fly. Who knows what was going on? But the point is, the whole time, they have no clue about what has just happened at this well. They have no clue. I wonder how long it took them to realize that Jesus wasn't eating. I mean, do you think that was instant? These are people. They're talking, they're eating their food, they're laughing, they're carrying on, they're at the well. They might be using her bowl to get water. We don't know. And they're just <clears throat> eating away. And then all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, Jesus isn't eating. And the whole point we went to town was so that we could get food for him, and now he's not eating. So they begin to urge him, and they say, Master, why aren't you eating? Aren't you starving? I mean, this was quite the journey. And what does he say? I have food to eat that you, I have food to eat that you do not know. And I think this is hilarious. So when he says that, what do these young men do? What the heck? Who gave him food? Who gave him food? Did you give it? Did, did, did someone, did she give him food? I mean, how did he get food? Oh, my word, right? But listen, you would think by now we would start to get used to this, right? This whole idea of Jesus speaking in the spiritual and us hearing in the Literal, right? Nicodemus, the Jew, the teacher of Israel, shows up with a question on his heart. How do I see the kingdom? And Jesus says, 
Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this brilliant spiritual man looks at him and says, what? Huh? How can a man be born again when he's old? Do you expect me to jump back in my mother's womb? How is that possible? Ding, 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 ding. You got it, Nicodemus. It's not possible. Now let's continue to talk about it. Right? Samaritan woman. Same deal. Right? If you knew who was talking to you right now, you would be asking me for living, living water. Sir, where are you going to get this living water? It's deep. This well is deep. You have nothing to draw with. Are you better than Jacob? And now, these young men who are following him and watching him on the daily, they say, food? Where, food we don't know about? Where did he get food? Who gave him food? So Jesus said to them, what is he going to do, by the way? He's going to keep talking, right? We already know this. And he's going to go deeper. He says in verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish it. Does that remind you of a verse? Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus wasn't saying that food, drink, and rest are not important, but that life is more important than those things. Dodd's commentary says this, the pronouns are emphatic. Do you know what that means? The pronouns are emphasized. So it is I am refreshed by a nourishment hidden from you, right? My food. I mean, something amazing had just happened, and they were completely unaware. They didn't even ask why. They were laser-focused on food. Jesus had a greater source of strength and satisfaction than food. It was in doing the will of the Father. In fact, I believe this encounter refreshed his soul. Alfred says this, the bodily thirst and hunger which our Lord had felt before had been and was forgotten in the carrying on of his divine work in the soul of this Samaritan woman. Have you ever experienced that? I have. I've experienced that in a lot of ways. I've experienced that in the literal way where I was starving to death, ready to go get lunch, and I had this interruption, and I had an amazing experience, deep spiritual experience with someone, and guess what? At the end of it, I didn't give a crud about Chipotle. I didn't. I wasn't, it's like I was satisfied. I can think about this in other ways too. I have been so emotionally spent. I have had times where you cannot even believe to where, um, and I'll be transparent, one, one of the worst times of my son's life when he was going through his mental health issues. Um, and I mean, it was even before we knew, we suspected, we knew he had Lyme disease, we knew he had had meningitis, and we suspected he had traumatic brain injury, which he did. But we were dealing with all of the results of that. 
And so he was self-medicating, and it was not good. And this was not normal for Zach. Like, he was spinning out of control. And I remember uh, one night, it was a Monday, and uh, his dad said, I need help. I need you to come help me get Zach out of um, a bar. And he was drinking way too much, and he was belligerent, and he wasn't doing well. And <laughs> my first thought is, well, what the heck am I going to do to get him out of the, like, if you, okay, so anyway, I won't go into that detail. Um, so I go, and, and um, it, I go, and it's not a good scene, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And I go to this place, and I finally get him still, and I look at him, and you might have to edit this out later, I don't know. I, I look at him, and I, I said, you know what, I, you make me so mad. I go, you have freaking Lyme disease. You are dairy-free, gluten-free, everything-free, and we're trying to do everything we can to get your body healthy. And you know what you've just done tonight, Zach? You've just filled, you've just given every parasite in your brain a freaking Red Bull. That's what you've done. And I said, so here's what you're going to do, young man. You are going to get your bleep up. I'm sorry about it. I needed a shock factor because I didn't really talk to my kids that way. So the minute I said that, I had his attention because he looked at me like, oh, my gosh, my mom just said bleep. And uh, I said, get your bleep up and get in your dad's truck and do it now. And he looked at me and I said, did I stutter? Get up and do it now. And that 25-year-old boy, I'm telling you, I had my bluff in early with my kids, okay? He looked at me and he goes, oh. And he obeyed me, okay? And he walked out and when he did, his dad was sitting there and I'm like, go. Like that. And so he gets him in the truck, you know, and and, and they leave, and on the way out, I said, hey, y'all have a good night. I got to go get, teach some high schoolers about Jesus. No big deal. <laughs> so this is what people don't understand, okay? All the pain and stuff going on beneath. And I had to get in my car that day, drive to high school Bible study that minute, I bawled my eyes out from the time I left to the time I pulled up in front, and I thought, I don't think I can do this. How am I going to go teach the Bible to all of these high schoolers when my son is coming off the rails? And I, thank goodness, I think all of my life has been, honestly, an exercise of being a, a three on the Enneagram, Okay. And whatever you think about the Enneagram, I don't really care. But a three has helped me understand myself. This has helped me understand myself, that I detach from my emotion to get the job done. And I'll be telling you, it's, it's not good for me. But if I could not do that, I don't know how I would have ever, in many cases, gotten the job done. And for me, that was a calling. And we can analyze that for days, and trust me, I, I will. But that night, I went and I preached to those high schoolers, probably pretty, probably a little more raw than usual. But I remember after 
feeling that God had just absolutely filled me up, where I came in like a washcloth. I left empowered because I had had that experience. And I think this is what he's trying to make them understand. This, oh man, it is completely on the wrong thing. This encounter has refreshed my soul. And not only does it say that my food is to do the will of him who sent me, but to accomplish it. And man, did he. And that right there also gives me a flash forward to when he says what? It is finished. He will accomplish what the Father has set for him to do. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Well, in normal, is your mind going, whew, that was a lot, right? Try staying in that paragraph for a while. Um, but in gentle fashion, Jesus the teacher, what is he doing? He's going deeper. He's going deeper into this food analogy, right? Just like he went deeper into the living water analogy. So he's taking them deeper. He's trying to help his disciples understand a spiritual truth by using something they can see and understand. Did he not do the same with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, the wind, do you remember that? He is always using things they can see and understand to make them begin to understand spiritual things that they cannot see. So some commentators will say that the way this is written, that this basically was a first century proverb about the patience of waiting on a harvest. The typical four to six month waiting period that happens between the time you sow the seed and the time of the harvest. Others, if you read, believe it's actually a description of the current crop situation and that it gives us basically a time of year. Okay. Either way, what is it? It's an object lesson. It is a lesson to the disciples so that they can understand. The crops before them were not yet ripe. They were still green. How did they know that? Well, they lifted up their heads and they looked because they would have recognized this. They looked out, they would have known basically kind of the stage that the crops were in. And because when wheat matured, it would form white, light yellow tips, if you've ever seen it. And so these crops were not ripe. So Jesus is telling them, I need you to look up and recognize something. The wheat is not ready for harvest, but what? But the people are. Can you imagine the contrast? Because while he's saying this, what's happening in the other scene? Come, 
and see. The people are coming. How are they coming? They're coming through the fields. This is an agricultural land. And so when they lift up their eyes to see, they see fields that are still green. They're not ripe. They're not ready for harvest. But when they look up, they see a harvest because the harvest are the people and they are coming in these white garments and the white headdresses. Picture that for a minute. What a beautiful scene coming through the green crops. What an illustration. <laughs> I would have been so tempted to say, hey, guys, just so you know, this is what you were missing when you went to get lunch. Something pretty marvelous happened while you were gone. So in other words, although there are ordinarily four months from seed to harvest, today, that's not the case. The seed of life, which he had sown but a few hours before, had already brought forth much fruit. And although they had not been a part of the sowing or labor, they would get to rejoice together for the harvest. But this wouldn't always be the case. He says, what the proverb says, one sows while another reaps. That's actually not normal. Think about it. Is that normal on a farm? No. Normal would be what? I mean, if you're running a farm and you have workers, normal would be that you guys would be out there, that you would sow, that you would wait, and the same people would what? Would reap. And so that's actually not normal. He says, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Here's one question. Who had been laboring in Samaria? Moses, I'm going to tell you. Did, were they familiar with the scriptures to some extent? Yes, they were. Actually, they believed the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. They, and she even had information, Samaritan woman had information, right, about worship. She had questions. Uh, she knew about the Messiah, what about John the Baptist? John the Baptist had baptized in these areas. So they had heard him preaching about the kingdom. Jesus, right? Jesus had been laboring. He labored with the Samaritan woman. And then what did she do? She went and she labored. But let me tell you somebody who didn't. The disciples, they went into town with one thing on their mind. Food. For one thing, they were hungry, okay? And for another thing, this was a flyby state. Samaria? Really? What role would the Messiah play in the lives of Samaritans? And for that matter, what role would the Samaritans play in the kingdom? They're prejudiced, they're racist. They weren't thinking about the Samaritans. They went into town amongst this harvest and they didn't sow a thing. They were focused on their own needs. They were not aware of others. Gosh, how often do we do that? How often do we live life and we are so focused on our own needs, our schedule of the day, what we're after, what we and our stinking opinions. 
I'm not even going to get on my soapbox, but I am so sick of people's opinions. I am. I'm sick of it. I've reached a point where I'm sick to death of everybody's opinions. Everybody has their opinion. Everybody thinks their opinion's right. And everybody thinks that we all need to hear their opinion. And I'm just as, I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody else. But the fact is, I, I, sometimes I just see through it. And I'm like, oh, you want to you wanna talk about freedom? You want to fight for freedom? Let me ask you, what do you do with your freedom? You want to gripe when the church uh, puts on some program or some message that you don't like because it's not biblical. Really? I teach biblically every Tuesday and I can't fill up the seats. You sit there and you gripe about this and you gripe about that and you gripe about this and it's all so self-focused and we are all about what we get out of the situation and we want to be heard and we're so focused on ourselves that honestly what we should be fired up about is sowing the seed of Jesus to the world. And it's not just in what's proclaimed from the stage, it's in being Jesus to the world. And we don't. We're focused on ourselves, and we are not aware of the other people around us. That's one of the things Jesus is stressing here. Yet when they return to Jesus, they experience this great harvest. What a surprise. Jesus is pushing them out of their comfort zone. He's causing them to evaluate all the things they thought they knew. They must have thought, well, what did we miss? I mean, really? How intense was that conversation with that? What did we miss? I mean, the hummus was still in their mouth when they looked up and saw the townspeople coming. And he begins to talk to them about the harvest. Point. When it comes to the kingdom, one person will sow. When it comes to the kingdom, one person will not sow, wait, and then reap most of the time. Having total control, awareness, and expectation of his crop. Jesus is saying, in my field, the sower and the reaper may be different. You have no idea where the crop is in its cycle, unless you what? Really pay attention. So there's no time to wait. You labor, and if you experience the harvest, then rejoice, knowing that those who labored before you are rejoicing with you. Point two, lift up your eyes. Pay attention. Look for the signs. Watch for opportunities. Listen to the Spirit. So crazy. I think we are getting so distracted by everything that's going on around us. Fake news here. Fake news there. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Oh my world, the, the sky is falling. We're losing our freedoms. They're going to take our guns. They're, I mean, we are like out of our minds right now with all kinds of fear and speculation and trembling. How much time are you leaning into the Holy Spirit so that he can talk to you? How much time are you lifting up your eyes and understanding this? Listen, this, it's, it's ripe for the harvest. Get out and sow. Yes, use your words, but be the gospel. Do you know how many people I know 
that know the gospel, they proclaim the gospel, but they don't love like the gospel. They don't serve like the gospel. He is saying, listen, now's the time. Do not wait. I mean, if you truly believe that the world is coming to an end because of an election or anything else, if you truly believe that, then what should you be out doing? Sharing the gospel. So I think we need to sit down and really evaluate what we're feeling and why and what the motivation is and spend some time with Jesus. And we need to pull back and go, okay, God, you're in control. You have a purpose for my life. I need to look up. And I need to recognize and get in line with what you are doing. And I am going to get back on track with evangelizing and telling people about Jesus. Because no matter what happens in this world, if they've got Jesus, they're good. Man, I didn't think I was going to preach like this, but I just decided I would. (laughs) 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Many believe because of her testimony. Her testimony, oh, I would have loved to have heard her testimony. I think she gave a lot of detail. I think she was realizing as time went by, oh my gosh, my entire story, he knew. He was there. He was with me. I wasn't alone. I wasn't forgotten. I'm not worthless. I'm not too far gone. He didn't reject me. All of this is still sinking into this woman. Can you imagine the way her testimony is flourishing? Listen, the first time you tell your testimony, it doesn't even relate to when it finally begins to sink in and you begin to mature and you go, oh my word, he was there with me the whole time he knew. And I, can't, I would have loved to have heard her testimony. This woman with no status, no credentials, testifies in such a way that many believe. The first time when it says she tells her testimony, she asks a question, could this be the Messiah? Come and see. Now she testifies and it says that many believe. What do I think this means? I think over the two days, what we're seeing is, yes, Jesus is teaching, but this woman continues to what? Testify. She testifies to one. She testifies to three. She testifies to however many groups are there. She is growing and she is learning and she is testifying and people are coming to know Jesus. She's telling her story so much that they ask him to stay. One commentator said this, that Samaritans should invite a Jewish teacher to stay with them with no fear of rebuff shows how completely he had won their confidence. He stayed and taught. I would have loved to have been there. We're not given the details. That's just rude, John. He taught for two days. What did he teach? I can't imagine what he taught. He taught with no interruptions from the religious leaders. 
None. He taught freely. He taught to people, honestly, who maybe had less scriptural knowledge, but what? Way less bias, open, wanting to hear so much that we know that he did proclaim, I am the Messiah. What did he teach them? I would have loved to known their questions as Samaritans, how they fit into the kingdom, what the kingdom is like, what happened back here. I don't know, but I would have loved to have been a part of this because whatever he taught in two days, it changed their world. So her testimony brings, and then he teaches, and it says, and even more believed. They honored the woman by saying, we are no longer just believing because of your testimony, but because we have experienced him. Isn't that it? Salvation is firsthand knowledge, all. It's not secondhand. Secondhand may get you there, but it has to be firsthand knowledge. Because I'm gonna tell you, secondhand knowledge, it will not get you through the storms. If what you believe is based on other people's testimonies and stories and no personal experience with Jesus on your own, I'm going to tell you what, I would have already ditched it. It has to be firsthand. And you know what their conclusion was? He is, I want you to underline this in your Bible, he is the savior of the world. <clears throat> that had to blow the disciples' minds. They did not, it's not the savior of the Jews. It is the savior of the world. I want to show you something. You know how often I tell you, if you don't know the big picture of the Bible, you're going to miss some things. I love getting down in the nitty gritty of the stories. I love that. But you know what I love just as much? I love backing up because there are lessons in the big picture that you're going to miss if you don't. And so I'm going to take you in nine minutes on a little trip of an over, we're going to do a flyover of where we've been because I want to show you something, okay? So stick with me. And all of this should be familiar to you because if you've been here, you will know it. If you haven't been here, you're grounded. But I will tell you this, you can go back to itsmaryshannon.com and you can watch all the lessons so that you don't miss anything, okay? And then you can look at this. But starting from the beginning, do you remember? In the beginning was the word. Do you remember that whole lesson? So before the beginning began, there was the word, the logos, divine order built into the cosmos, the life light that was blazing out of the darkness. We learned by John that all things were made by him, that although he made all things, the world didn't recognize him. We were told that the word would come into his own and they would not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he said, not by birth of the flesh or seed or human will, but a birth of God. And then he says, and he put on flesh so that we could see his glory, so that we could know God. Are, all, are you seeing how John is supporting the first thing he says by what you've learned so far? Then, not only did we just take John Apostle's uh, testimony, but then John the Baptist, he said, if you don't believe me, 
Maybe you'll believe John the Baptist. What do we learn there? I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. And he says, I know this because the one who sent me out here prophesying told me that when I see the Spirit come upon him, I will know who he is. And I'm telling you, it is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. So we have the testimony of John, almost a thesis statement. And then we have the testimony of John the Baptist. And then what do we have? Then he starts to pick his men. Do you remember this? And we have their testimonies. Andrew said to Peter, we have found the Christ. Philip said to Nathanael, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets have written about. And in the end, Nathanael says what? He, you are the king of Israel. So we have all of these testimonies, the testimony of the author, the testimony of John the Baptist, and the testimony of the disciples. And then what comes next? You can cheat. You can look in your Bible. The wedding at Cana. Do you remember this? And the whole lesson was that we started with a wedding. The first thing we see in his ministry, this first miraculous thing was at a wedding. Why? Because what's it going to end with? The wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And we talked all through that. The beauty of it will no longer be the old covenant, but a new covenant in his blood. It will be joy. And we went through the entire wedding. And all of that happened in Cana. And we saw this picture of the bridegroom beginning to go out to meet the bride that the father has given him. Then we went to the what? Cleansing of the temple. It was the time of Passover. He is the Lamb of God. They were corrupting the way. The disciples realized he has zeal for the house of God. And he predicts his death. And then we come to the place where it says that he knows what is in man. So we have John's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony. We have hints of a spiritual birth. We have hints that he is the Lamb of God. We then have the disciples saying he is the King of Israel. It all starts with a wedding celebration, a celebration together to get him started. He's about to go out and meet the bride that the Father has prepared. And what a joyous occasion that it will be a new covenant in his blood. And then you go to the temple and he cleans, cleanses the temple because this is the way. He is the Lamb of God. And then we go and he says, I know what is in man. And we see the first one he meets is Nicodemus. Where does that happen? Look in your Bible. Where does this event take place? In Jerusalem. Okay? Remember, he's teaching in Jerusalem and Nicodemus comes out to him. And Nicodemus represents the best that the Jews have to offer. He is the teacher. And he is saying, Nicodemus, unless you are born of God, not a flesh, right? Unless you are born of God, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And he begins to give this entire message about being born again. Then Jesus moves into the area of Judea where he's baptizing. And we have another reminder by John the Baptist Guys, you need to listen up. I am not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And then we move to where? Samaria, where he goes to a well, which is a betrothal scene. And we have the bridegroom sit down at the well, 
with a woman of Samaria, a woman, low status, married five times. I mean, we had the lowest of the low in Samaria. We had the highest of the high in Jerusalem. And we have this amazing relationship that begins. And she then goes out and becomes one of the first most amazing witnesses to Samaria. We have this amazing scene. So now let me read you something. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and into the very ends of the earth. What did these Samaritans say at the end? You are the savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. He departs to Galilee. He goes back to his own people. And just like he had predicted, they didn't disappoint. They wouldn't honor him. They were just enamored by his miracles. They weren't drawn to who he was, but what he could do for them. And where did this take place? He ends up coming straight on back to Cana, where he started. Do you see the big picture? He started at Cana with a marriage, a wedding. He goes to Jerusalem, and he cleanses the temple. And then he says, I know what's in man. He's, he's getting to know his bride. He's got the best of the best of the Jews. I know you think you've earned it. You won't see it. You must be born again. And then there's another reminder uh, by John. I'm not the bridegroom. And where is that? That's in Judea. I am the friend. And then we go to Samaria to a betrothal scene at a well with the lowest of the low of Samaria. And he talks to a hopeless woman about living water. And then he returns back and he says to us, I'm going to go back because it's to the Jew first. But just know, a prophet is never honored in his own place. Why? Because we know back from chapter one, he came into his own and they, they would not receive him. Why? They're so sidetracked by what he can do for them instead of who he is. He's the prize. We just got a snapshot of what it is to testify. We testify in Jerusalem, in Judea, into Samaria, into other, the utmost parts of the world. Why? He is and has always been the savior of the world. He chose the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, to watch, to protect, to teach. He made them his because his purpose from the beginning was I will make them mine to bring the Messiah out so that I can then open up salvation to the world. That's our job. That's what we're here for. Why are we not about our business? Why is that not our purpose? Why are we not out testifying and being that to all people? I feel like right now we're more divided than we've ever been. We need to get back to where we need to be. 
You want to boast freedom? Use your freedom to worship God, to be in the word, to start growing, to get out and to start doing our job. Quit getting sidetracked about the sky is falling and this and that. I'm telling you that God rules the kingdoms of men. He is not shocked. He has a plan and he has a job for us to do. And we need to be about doing it. What does it look like? We're going to be a testimony in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That is our job. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the reminder. And God, may you continue to teach independently in the hearts of these women beyond which I could ever know and imagine. God, I pray that you would literally put the passion of people's souls in me, that you would revive that, that don't let me get lost in my pain and my darkness and my woe is me's. If I've learned anything, we are not promised tomorrow. And so we need to be out being the gospel instead of analyzing everybody else as they go out To be honest, Lord, if we're not out, we have no right to criticize. And so, God, I pray that you would literally fill our souls with a passion for people to stop and to put ourselves in their story, to have empathy, to give love, to preach the fact that you are the living water and to understand that really, Lord, comfort, oh, comfort in so many ways is our enemy. We get distracted by it. So God, may we go out and be a testimony like this woman to be willing to be vulnerable and broken around other people so that they can see that you are great. Lord, we love you. Be with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.